Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Nikki May about Wahala, her entertaining novel about female friendship with a thriller edge. Nikki was born in Bristol and raised in Lagos, and after running a successful ad agency, wanted to write books that reflected her life as an Anglo-Nigerian woman. In this episode, we discuss her exciting route to publication, writing about big issues with a light touch, and how reading your work aloud with someone is the key to great dialogue. But first, here's Nikki with an extract from Wahala. Chapter 1. Pounded yam in egusi? Eba, with okra. No, it had to be pounded yam, but maybe with eforiro. Ronke ran through the menu in her head as she walked up the hill to Buka. She knew it by heart, but that didn't make choosing any easier. As usual, she wanted it all. And, as usual, she was running late. She stopped at the cash point anyway and withdrew a hundred pounds. The girls teased her, told her it was an urban myth. But ever since Ronke had heard the story about Simi's cousin's friend getting her card cloned at Booker, she'd paid in cash. Ronke had been looking forward to their Niger lunch all week, and not just because of the food. For the first time in ages, when Simi asked, So, what's new? The answer wouldn't be, Nothing. She hustled past the Sainsbury's local, the Turkish grocery and the Thai nail bar. The Nigerian flag outside Booker was looking a little tatty, frayed at the edges. The green was still vibrant, but the white was a dirty beige. Ronke studied her reflection in the shiny mirrored door, yanked at her hair to fluff up some of the curls, patted to fatten some down. As good as it gets. At least once a day, someone said to her, I wish I had curly hair. But Ronke knew better. Curls meant frizz, knots and chaos. She pushed open the door and stepped out of suburban London and into downtown Lagos. The smell hit her first. Smoky burned palm oil, fried peppers and musty stockfish. Next came the noise. Fella Kuti blared out of the speakers, struggling to compete with the group of three men at a corner table, talking over each other. And because this was effectively Nigeria, their voices were louder, accents stronger, gesticulations wilder. The waiter looked up with a scowl. As Ronke turned to shut the door, she knew his eyes would linger on her arse. It felt like home. Hi, Nikki. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to you about Wahala. 
Thanks for having me, Chloe. It's good to meet you properly. Can you talk us through the plot of your novel to get started? Okay, other people compare it to Sex and the City, and I'm okay with that because it's in a city, it's got four girls, there's a bit of sex and they drink cocktails, but really it's a subversive modern take on friendship, family and culture, and it's underpinned by a rather epic revenge twist. It's centred on three 30-something friends living in London, and they have a mixed Nigerian-British heritage in common, which I also share. Ronke's a dentist, she's dating Kayade and is desperate for him to be the one she wants 2.2 kids and happy ever after with lots of food. Boo has everything Ronke wants. She's got a kind husband, a gorgeous child, a lovely kitchen, wooden floors, but she's frustrated, unfulfilled, and she's desperate to get back to who she used to be. Then there's Simi. She's the golden one. Her life is perfect on the surface at any rate, but actually Simi's crippled by imposter syndrome and she's great at keeping secrets. Her husband thinks they're trying for a baby. She's not. Then rich and glamorous Isabel explodes into the friend group. At first, it seems she's bringing out the best in everyone, but Isabel is a wrecking ball and her motives for causing wahala, which means trouble, propel the narrative all that all the way to that rather shocking twist at the end Mm, well we're going to talk about devious Isabel later on but first of all I want to talk to you a little bit about the kind of the seed of inspiration for Wahala and I read that it it happened for you after a very long loud lunch which is always the best kind of lunch um with some friends at a Nigerian restaurant in London which readers will know if they've read Wahala that's where your novel starts uh, but in a very similar way to this l- loud, long lunch. Um, so how did that idea start from kind of this seed and then develop into something bigger? When did you know that you had something special on your hands? I've always wanted to write a book, but then I think a lot of people think that. So I'd had this thought, in fact, I moved to Dorset 17 years ago to write the book, but it took me another 12 years to even start. I wanted a book to have people like me in it, mixed race and middle class, and I wanted it to be the kind of book I like reading. So contemporary, quite um, page turnery, lots happening, but sort of a bit gossipy. So I went to this lunch, wine was involved, and on the slow train home to Dorset, I started doodling out these characters. I almost felt that as I left the restaurants, I code switched out of Nigerian me, and as I boarded the train into English me. So I started doodling these characters and writing the first scene, which was about three girls in a restaurant very similar to the one I just left. And by the time I got home, these characters felt really real to me. So I talked to my husband about it and he said, well, you've been banging on about it for long enough, so just do it. So I went on a Curtis Brown short six week start your novel course and three three chapters poured out. I can't say that I ever knew this was the book. It's the first book I've ever started to write. And I think with hindsight, I knew it was the book because I kept going, because writing a book is hard. There's a lot, 90,000 words, and my first draft was over 100. It's a lot of book, it's slog, and you do get lost in it. You do find there are days when you think it's a, well, not days, weeks, months, when you (laughs) think it's complete crap. So it takes a lot to push you through. So I think when I knew, I think I knew that this was the book when I, the girls were just so alive in my head, and I'd almost dream of them. If I saw a girl with a ponytail, I think about Boo every time I cooked I thought of Ronke so I think I think because I loved the characters so much that's what kept me going but I don't know there's ever a minute until I got an agent even that I thought this is actually a good book Mm. yeah I guess it's 
a part of it, I suppose, is a bit of a gut feeling, like you say, if they're, if those are characters that are staying with you and you keep wanting to go back to them, you feel like you can't stay away from them. I suppose that's an indication that you've got something. That's exactly it. Because I actually think plot is more fixable than characters. So definitely my plot needed a lot of fixing after the draft. And my characters just got more and more three-dimensional as I wrote. So by the time I got to the end of the book, I was just in love with them. They had to exist. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. It's a real kind of character-led, although it's very page-turnery, the characters are, are so, and their friendships are so essential to the story. You've said in another interview that first and foremost, it was kind of an entertaining story, which is what you wanted to tell, and you absolutely have. But you also wanted to address the kind of everyday issues that women have, but also particularly with a biracial focus and things that related to your life. How did you find getting the balance right when you were trying to write something kind of entertaining, but also dealing with these bigger issues? I think it's quite tough. And what I wanted was for the, you can't have mixed race characters without touching on race or colorism or class, but I really didn't want to be issues based. And also I didn't feel it was my job to educate or to solve these issues. If I could solve racism, I wouldn't be writing books. I'd hopefully (laughs) be doing something much more useful. So to me, it was kind of just make sure that you're not lecturing, you're not hectoring and you're not sort of, I also didn't want the sympathy vote, if that makes any sense. I didn't want my women because my, my, I wanted it to reflect how I feel and how my, how most of my friends feel, which is generally very positive. And when we do bump into racism, which isn't every day, it's more of a minor annoyance than a huge thing. So I, I don't, and I don't think I always got the balance right. I think a lot, as I said before, a lot of this happens in the editing when you read a chapter and think actually you've gone too heavy on X or you've gone too light on Y, and you sort of pull it together but I think what I wanted to do was tell the story and have the characters and where those issues appear treat them the way I would treat them in my own actual life so sort of a bit irritated a bit irritated by them and a bit sort of uh, not again but rather than getting bogged down if that makes Mm. any sense yeah definitely and I think that's all part of the character building isn't it you want to make them feel like real authentic women and it would be it would be kind of ridiculous to make them have none of these issues or to 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 do it with a such a light touch that you didn't even notice they were there so yeah yeah. and also a lot of these are lived experiences for me you know I did borrow bits of my life they people say apparently your first book is much more likely to have a lot of you in it so I did borrow bits of me and bits of my friends so and, and you change them. And I have to be honest, I thought about race more writing this book than I ever have in my whole life. Because I guess when you start exploring it at a deeper level, rather than just going through it, you start to think, so there are things like my mother's parents, my grandmother, maternal grandparents and having nothing to do with them. This is not something that I've ever dwelled on. It was just something that happened and you don't miss what you don't know. But as soon as I gave wrong care this issue, you start to think about it more and think, what was wrong with them? Why did they say you sort of explore and do a bit more self-analysis? So write your book, cheaper than therapy. (laughs) Yeah, maybe more intense than therapy therapy sometimes. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes for sure. So you mentioned already that you were inspired I guess by by some of your friends I wonder whether because you were writing about such a close-knit friendship group have any of your friends kind of approached you and said hang on a minute this feels very familiar 
all the time it's the whole which one is me which one is me and they pick on little things so one of my very best friends Maxine has a scatter cushion problem I mean you go to her house and you spend the first half an hour knocking cushions off the sofa so that you can sit down and then you can't walk because her whole carpet is then covered in blingy shiny satiny cushions so Ronke I gave Ronke this scatter cushion problem much milder version than Maxine's I must admit and she's now convinced she's wrong she has nothing else in common with her at all she's a crap cook she's you know what she's not a dentist but she's absolutely convinced she's wrong care my sister's convinced everybody wants to be wrong care funnily enough that's the one person they all decide they are so they I, every time I meet them now it's like which one's me which one's me and I found an easy way to shut them up is to just say Isabel <laughs> brilliant I love that that's the best answer <laughs> <laughs> it keeps it quiet so one of the things I love, and you've already mentioned this, is sort of the, the gossipy vibe of the novel. Um, I really, especially when I finished the book, I was like, I just want to go to Booker with them and, and sit at that table and, and enjoy and join in. So how did you um, approach writing the dialogue? Because it's really snappy and, and it feels like dialogue between true friends that have known each other a long time. Thank you. I've got so many compliments about my dialogue when I was on submission, which was just lovely. I was beaming from ear to ear, but my husband's decided he's going to take all the credit for my dialogue. (laughs) And the way we did it was I wrote it and then we'd actually read it all out loud to each other playing the parts so he's had to play Ronke, Boo, Isabel, Simi and I found if you can say it to each other and it doesn't sound ping pong and it doesn't sound forced and you're not using words you wouldn't use then it's right and often you often if you speak it out loud you realize no you wouldn't talk like this and of course you can suspend disbelief and in fiction you have Um, you can get away with things but generally I think reading dialogue out loud ideally with someone else playing the different parts is I think a really good way to hone it and one thing I always do which is terrible I always have to start my scenes at the beginning so I always have to start with the hello would you like a cup of tea and all of those then have to be crossed out in red but I find it impossible to just I have to sort of start at the beginning and then so every day my first thousand words or so I know are going in the bin but I can't start I can't start without it if that makes any sense at yeah all. it's a bit it's, it gets it's a bit of a warm-up in, in your yeah. brain as, as well as on the page um yeah the um the idea of having to kind of slash a thousand words might fill some writers with horror but I think it's it's all part of the process of editing isn't it so getting exactly. used to that feeling is is something maybe we all have to have to learn yeah and just accept the first hour is warm up in my case sometimes yeah. too <laughs> <laughs> Um, So I want to talk about your characters a little bit more. For you, character is the driving force of your writing. That was the thing you always kept coming back to. Um, So for readers who don't know, Wahala centres around these three great friends. And then obviously we've got this newcomer, Isabel, that comes into this group. How did these characters develop? You said that they, they started, you started with kind of these brief sketches of them. And then over time, they, they fleshed out in your mind because they've all got quite they're all quite flawed personalities they're very real they've got they're all dealing with different issues be it relationships themselves um work things like that so how did you how did you basically make them 3d characters so the first three chapters I just 
wrote I did on this course and I just wrote and afterwards I had these three characters and I've worked in advertising all my life so I'm used to working to a brief and I'm used to having taking a lot of direction and you know me um, knowing that you have to achieve certain things and I knew early on that my three characters had to be really different especially I I was determined to have this carousel of point of view so it goes ronkebu simi ronkebu simi so it was actually essential that they weren't just different but they sounded different and felt different and came off the page differently so after I'd done these three chapters the girls were too similar so in true professional advertising agency exec way (laughs) I turned to excel and I made this ridiculous spreadsheet when I printed it out in 12 points on a4 it used 40 bits of paper it was when I pinned (laughs) it on the wall it was taller than me and it went through every single thing you could imagine about your characters. I mean, ridiculous things. How would they react if they saw someone kicking a dog? Where would they like to go on holiday? How old were they when they first kissed someone? You know, just stuff that I would never actually put in the book. And to be honest, once I produced the spreadsheet, I hardly ever looked at it, but it was going through that process, which took me a week to do, that kind of solidified these women in my head. And I think that really helped make them different. I mean, they have different hair, they have different figures, they have different ways of talking they drink different things they have different attitudes to food and life and men and right producing this spreadsheet which took quite a long time was almost like the drill I needed to keep these women apart and yes it was almost intentional to make sure that they're at slightly different stages in their lives although they're the same age they're slightly different in terms of career in terms of having kids in terms of wanting kids in terms of marriage and love and also just in terms of outlook so that was quite deliberate but it then became because I knew them so well I knew how they'd react to almost anything so when I when you started throwing when I started throwing wahala trouble at them I kind of knew how each one would react I also love flawed characters in real life as well as in fiction flawed people are just so much more interesting than perfect people so there was never any chance that I would have good wonderful people in my book I don't I'm not sure I could ever write a good wonderful person because I'd get bored so they all had to be flawed because I think we all are and I just think it's part of life and the wonderful thing about writing which is why I know I could never write a screenplay is obviously you can talk about what's in their heads so a lot of the things that they think if they actually said them they would be absolutely awful people but we're allowed to think terrible things at least I do on a daily basis, I'm afraid (laughs) to say, but saying them out makes it completely different, doesn't it? And I also Mm. think when you're in a close-knit group, there are things you can say to very close friends that you wouldn't say to other people and you can get away with it, whether it's right or not, I don't know. But certainly one of the early scenes, I think it's even the first scene when Simi says, she's half cast. And I do say that with friends I've grown up in Nigeria with, because that's what we were. For the first 18 years of my life, I was a half cast. It wasn't a bad thing, it's just what I was. And I appreciate things change and I wouldn't say this to anyone else, but with my girlfriends that grew up in the same place as me, that's our lingo. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you have to, you have to be true to the characters, don't you? You can't, you can't um, kind of censor yourself when you're coming up with their personalities and like you say there's things in the book that your characters say think do that you know are the wrong thing let's say but they do them and you know and that that also produces the conflict between the friendships um and that that helps to drive your story as well 
Exactly. And I think that's what's lovely about writing. We can people can know things. The right the reader can actually know things that the characters don't know, which is mm. really good fun. Hard to keep track of, but good fun. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first writer that loves a spreadsheet. So I, I definitely ah. think that's something many people will have in common. <laughs> so I want to speak a little bit about the kind of thriller element that's weaved into Wahala. Um, because obviously we've talked about the kind of comparisons to Sex and the City and uh, being a book about friendship, but you've got this darker edge running through it, which I guess a lot of readers will be racing to the end of the book to find out uh, what happens with with Isabel. Was that thriller relevant something that happened from the start? Did it come later on when you were editing it? How did that how did that um, aspect of it emerge? So I always knew where I wanted it to go. I wasn't exactly sure at the end what I'd do with certain people, but I always knew where I wanted to go and I always knew it would get pretty dark. And the if ahead was in my head from that first train journey. So there was, I knew where it was going and what I was doing. But my first draft, I didn't actually get there because I liked these women so much that nothing bad happened. They went for lots of lunches, <laughs> they wore lots of clothes, they, they ate even more, if you can believe that. And I was just, I couldn't make anything bad happen to them. And then I did this Authors for Grenfell auction thing where I won a critique from Julie Cohen. And she said one thing that just sorted it out. She said, what's the worst thing you can do? Do that. And after that, it was pretty easy. It was just make life <laughs> as hell as you can. Give these girls what hella. So... Isabel, I love. I was watching a lot of Killing Eve at the time. So I think Villanelle somehow crept into my head. And isn't she just this wonderful character? I also had so much fun with her wardrobe. I spent thousands of virtual pounds on Netta Porter <laughs> because when you're dressing your characters, obviously budget is limitless and you can do whatever you want. And I just love that sort of side boober lunch, this sparkling and also the wealth. The wealth, in some ways, it's also... It was a thing about Nigeria because in Nigeria, the wealth gap is even worse than it is here. And I think our wealth gap is pretty, pretty mm. terrible. But in Nigeria, there's this probably less than 0.1% of society that have limitless wealth, limitless privilege and use it awfully. So that thing of getting away with murder is actually something that can happen and does happen. So Isabel was really fun to write. And it, the difficulty was she didn't have a point of view because if she did, obviously it would ruin everything. So mm. it's sort of just other people reacting to her. But I also do think that there are people who can worm their way into your life and who are very good at insinuating themselves and making you feel that they've got your back. I've certainly met people like that, maybe not mm. quite as bad as Isabel, <laughs> but people who you find after now, I think, why am I telling them all of this? I mean, I hardly know you and yet I'm telling you these deeper secrets as they buy you yet another glass of champagne. She was fun. Yeah, yeah I can definitely imagine them. And uh, it's the, I think it's the, the subtlety of her. And, and as a reader, you know, well, you know she's trouble and, and you're, you're wanting to shake and scream at the characters being like, what are you doing telling her this? Um, but that's all part of the fun, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Watching it unfold. Mm. I want to rewind a little bit and talk about how you began your writing career. I know we've said about you used to work in the added industry. Um, was writing something you'd always wanted to do? I know you mentioned moving to Dorset in the, in the hopes that it would uh, let you write that novel, but was it something you wanted to do forever? I think so. I mean, it's always hard with hindsight, isn't it? But I've always written, I wrote terrible poetry. I actually found a, my poetry book 
that I had as an 11 year old and oh my god it's so <laughs> cringeworthy and I was this spotty teenager and pouring out my love stories about this boy in class who didn't know who I was and it's just it's terrible but so I've always written and I've always doodled and sketched I can't draw so when I say doodle I mean words I've always sort of mm. I've always got a notepad and I'm always writing things down and in advertising I wrote I ran my own agency and it was a little, very small agency. So you tended to do everything. My husband was the art director. I was the copywriter. So I always wrote for, to, to a brief, you know, whether it was dodgy telecoms copy or books on cooking and mindfulness. So I'm kind of used to this discipline of a blank page and the discipline of getting things down and word count. And also I think was really helpful. I'm used to criticism. I'm used to clients taking out the best possible lines and replacing them with crap. And I'm used to my best ideas being not bought. So you're sort of, you're used to changing things. You're used to editing. You stop being so precious about everything. So killing darlings while still terribly hard was not as hard as it might've been if I hadn't gone through all of that. And in terms of writing fiction, I'd always wanted to write a book, but I do think it's a very indulgent thought. And when you tell people, I remember telling my mum, and you see their eye roll and say, <laughs> yes, of course you do, darling. So you sort of think you want to do it and thought I thought I could do it, but it is hard. It's much harder than it appears, much harder than I thought it was. We'll talk about book two, but we could talk about really, really hard. So <laughs> I think, I think, um, and I think I'm really lucky that the first idea I had was a good idea because I do think if I'd had a dodgy manuscript or a manuscript that I couldn't work with I don't know I've done it all again mm. you do do you think that would have made you give up I think it's very possible it would I really do so I mean I you can't tell because it didn't happen mm. but I do think I think there's a chance I would have yeah, I remember it, when I was querying and I thought if I don't get an agent I'm going to dump this book and start another one so maybe I wouldn't have but I think it definitely would have it have hurt <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, I know, um, like you said about having that dream and people rolling their eyes, I think it's hard because you do hear it, a lot of people saying, oh, I want to write a book or I've, I've written 600 books and they've never done anything with them. And it's having that, the guts to go, I'm going to finish it. I'm then going to go down the route of trying to get an agent or however you're going to approach getting a book deal and you're putting yourself out there it's not easy to to feel like you can do this because you know so many people can't exactly and I remember when I'd done my first draft so I'd got to 90,000 very shitty words printed them off ream of paper read them realized how awful it was put it in a drawer and then people would ask how's that book going and you'd almost think oh oh oh, yeah yeah you know you try and change Mm. the subject think why did I tell anyone because it's complete (laughs) crap and it sat in that drawer for six months and then I got it out and realized actually of course it's crap it's the first draft they're meant to be crap you you know pull it apart tear things out put things in but it takes a hell of a lot of it takes a hell of a lot of yourself because I think you can't be a writer without huge amounts of self-doubt. Mm. I think that's one thing everybody I've met in writing has in spades. And you'd say you're torturing yourself at the same time of, as producing this hopefully good book. Mm. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let's talk about how you got that book deal and got your agent. Because I know there'll be people listening who think I've got this amazing idea or I've written this book that I'm really proud of how did you get your agent and your book deal how did it all come about so again discipline my background of approach it like a brief and do it really professionally so I and I have a really helpful husband who did this with me so whilst I was actually finishing my last edit he was doing my writer my agent spreadsheet so I had a spreadsheet of 40 agents you check what are they looking for what's on their query list what sort of books do they represent and then you have to so I had this list of 40 and I decided I read that you put you query five at a time so I thought well eight's as good as five so let's do eight <laughs> to start with because it's going to take months you're told it's going to mm. take forever and you know you, you it could take six weeks for them to send you a no I'm not interested so you know I had I was down for the long haul I thought this was going to take a couple of years I just won the grindstone literary prize which is just a small prize for amateurs and the judge was an agent who said she'd love to see the book when it was done so obviously she weighed the top eight agents I queried and I was just hugely lucky three hours after sending out eight query letters oh the other thing is the query letter each letter is slightly different because you're tuning it to that particular agent and in some ways you do a bit of flattery you know you say you represent this book which is my dream book of all time and then they've all got slightly different instructions on first three chapters or first five thousand words or whether it goes to a portal you know it's all kind of it takes six hours to put together eight query letters and that's after you've written the letters so anyway sent them off went for a long dog walk and on this long dog walk I got a call saying can I have the full and I am screaming like a <laughs> lunatic the dogs think I've gone mad because this three hours later so then you leverage your request so you send a note to the other seven saying hi and I've just sent it to you but I've had a request for the full and by the end of the day I had six requests for the full wow and this was just crazy so this was a <laughs> Wednesday and on Saturday I went to London to have friends to have um, dinner with some friends I used to work with 
and we're at the table having dinner and one of the agents calls at nine o'clock in the night so I've just finished can I represent you so lots of screaming lots of champagne and by the end of that week I'd had six offers of representation so for me it was a complete whirlwind completely Mm -hmm. crazy and I was super lucky because it was February before lockdown so I managed to go to London and actually meet them face to face but it was just it was luck right timing and I had edited like crazy so my book was my manuscript was quite polished apparently compared to I could theoretically I could have created eight earlier yeah so when did it go out um on submission to uh publishers was it very soon so this was February and I went out on submission in July which okay. felt really long to me so I thought <laughs> what's going on just get it out there but apparently this is and it was also I think Covid had a few things and I did a structural edit with my agent yeah before it went out and then was the was the submission process a bit of a whirlwind did you hear very quickly um, I got a preempt an overnight mm. preempt which was ah! and then my agent <laughs> says no we're not taking it. we're going to the races I'm like are you sure <laughs> and then we went to an auction and it was a nine-way auction in the UK which was just madness Chloe so you're sitting there and before this only your husband and your agent have read your book and suddenly you're having scenes with editors who you die for and they're saying things about your writing and you're thinking she sent a different book there is no <laughs> way they're talking about my book and the other thing that I think is really um well funny and lovely is they read different things into your book that to be honest I didn't know I put there so mm. you know you start and now I'm talking about oh the nuance of the flawed characters you know I'm talking <laughs> as if this was stuff I had planned and I hadn't planned any of it it just was ha- what, what I wrote but obviously that's absolutely lovely um having you know your ego stroked madly for after this whole episode of self-doubt while you were writing and then it did exactly the same thing in the states the following week where it went to a six-way auction and that was it and then that was in July and then it takes another 18 months before it comes out so you know you think right so when are we going to publish and they're like um, January 2022 like really that far away (laughs) so but yes but it's it does pass eventually yeah it always feels like a long a long gap in between things happening but then when it does happen it's all very quick yeah it's certainly slow 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 and go 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 (laughs) isn't it um you've had amazing success with your book and I know you as you've just mentioned it's uh sold in the states as well so that brings a different element to it because you're working with multiple editors in different countries um how did that work out did they have a very similar vision for the book did you have any kind of disagreements with with editors about how you wanted things to go? What was that like? I was really lucky that my editors kind of worked together in time slots. So I had my UK editor would give me her structurals and then my American editor would give me her structurals on top of that. So I'd have two sheets of paper at the same time. So I was only going through it once and they often didn't disagree with each other or didn't agree with each other rather, which was actually really freeing because it meant I could do whatever I liked because they're (laughs) going to be arguing about it. And both were very clear that it's your book. You you're in charge. Mm. So but but on the other hand, they're editors because they're good at what they do. So I did try every single thing I was asked to do and only didn't do it if I genuinely felt I wasn't making my book any better. And even then I'd go back and say, look, I really tried to do it, just didn't Mm. work for me. It doesn't fit with this. And there were little things like at one point it was, do we need a glossary of words? And do we need to explain who Fela Kuti is? It's like, no, 
but we don't. And if somebody doesn't know who Felakuti to, to a Nigerian, it's like Elvis Presley, to a West African, in fact. And you wouldn't ask someone to explain who Elvis Presley is just in case someone in a village in Nigeria was reading their book and never heard of them. And also we have Google, so if you yeah. don't, if you stumble across <laughs> the word, and that was fine, it wasn't an argument, but I was really determined I will not explain what jollof rice is or what, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. And they were absolutely fine about it. Um, so structural edits were cool. And the ending was the one that we did. I did lots of rewrites. I think I've written the ending of this book 30 times. Certainly feels like it. And then line edits, which were my favourite. I really like line edits when you realise how crap your writing really is. <laughs> how you use these words over and over again. And how can there be still be so many mistakes in the book that I've edited so many times? But it was all good fun. And I learned loads. You know, you learn so much with your debut going through this process and then you think it's all over and then there's copy edits but it was great because my publisher Doubleday tend to use quite Americanized spelling anyway so lots of z's instead of s's so there was very little in the very end that they changed for America I think football became soccer and but very very little so working with two editors for me was really easy and I actually felt I got twice the benefit I felt I got two wonderful editors giving me ideas and it was great that they sometimes disagreed because it just went to show how subjective things are yeah yeah that's great and I think it's reassuring to hear you talk about how you were able to kind of stand your ground a little bit in some areas and and make the decisions that you felt were best for the book because I think um perhaps some writers feel that uh they won't get any say when it comes to that level but of course at the end of the day is your book I think it also helps that I'm quite old, <laughs> very old, some would say. So I'm 56. I've worked, you know, I've worked for nearly 40 years. I've so I, I also I felt to me this I think there's a danger that a lot of writers feel this is an honour and they're doing a favour. It isn't. It's a business. They're publishing your book because they think it's a commercially viable book but they love it too I mean it's not just Mm. it's not but I think we've got to I think sometimes we can be a little bit too grateful and a little bit too oh my god they you know they want me to I think we all need to stand our ground we're professionals we've written something people want it's up to us to feel confident and obviously I have to tell myself this every five minutes because (laughs) obviously self-doubt but I do think (laughs) it's quite important that we don't feel we're being done a favor we're not Mm. we're we're delivering something that people want to read and we should feel we should feel, you know, that we have a right to feel strongly about certain things. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a mantra we should all adopt there. <laughs> um, and now I want to talk about your incredible news that your novel is being adapted for the BBC by uh, the brilliant Teresa Akoko. Um, how does that feel? You must be over the moon. It is, I'm gritty like an idiot and I've known about this for more than a year. It's just mental. It's, I don't know why it's almost more exciting than the book. And also I've got nothing to do with it, which makes it super exciting. One of the first questions my book to screen uh, agent asked was, did I want to um, be involved in the script writing? And it was really easy for me to say, no, writing book two is hard. Started trying to learn how to write a script, completely different skill set. And I would rather somebody who knew what they were doing was working on it. So I've struck gold. My producer, Liz Kilgariff, did Bodyguard, did Luther, did The Cry, and she loves the book and she gets it. So she's great. And then Teresa Ikoko BAFTA nominated for mm. Rocks, which is a brilliant Amazing movie. Film. Everybody should watch Rocks. Mm. And she's also Anglo Nigerian. So I don't have to explain who Fela Kutsi is. So it's <laughs> just wonderful and 
I don't have very much to do with it. They're being great. They're being super collaborative. So they're sharing everything. And I'm still determined to be an extra in that, oh, I'm there scene. Oh, All my, my friends want to be extras to too. So we won't <laughs> need any extras because I've got my whole gang who want to be in it. And I know that I'll be pausing when it says based on a novel by Nikki May. And mm. it's just fantastic. But also it's great because I just sit here doing absolutely nothing. And it feels the book feels really pressured I feel oh my god how's the book doing and you mm. sort of judge yourself and you can't help but compare but with the tv it just feels like icing the sprinkles bonus yeah. just all good stuff and and the best bit is because you're not involved in the kind of the process of making it you can watch it as a fan and exactly. you can almost forget that you wrote it and just enjoy it exactly exactly you're completely right and I think they will do different things to it and I'm really sanguine about it people are mm. oh what if they change it so well they're going to change it yeah. and that's fine it's absolutely mm. fine and also if it's complete crap it'll say nothing to do with me and if it's wonderful <laughs> that's all nothing to do with me yeah <laughs> yes, so it's a real win-win it's also I think uh, to me as well like I like I've recently really got into audiobooks and I think it, it makes you experience the book in a different way and for me personally that's one thing I'm really excited about hearing when it's my book because it, I think it'll be like almost a different interpretation of it so having this tv adaptation is like a whole other level yeah but the audio bits you're completely right it's like mm-hmm. I'm listening to my book on audio and it does feel like a different book mm-hmm. and I keep I hate doing readings now and I had to send you my reading segment because I can't <laughs> I cheat and send her the one from my actual audible because she it reads it so much better than me <laughs> oh brilliant I'm so excited to see it on tv I think it's going to be amazing um we now have to talk about well I'm going to say the dreaded book too, but yeah. it might not be dreaded. We're, we'll, we've heard a lot about kind of second novel syndrome, like second album syndrome. Um, do you think your success or do you think your own uh, self-doubt has made writing your second novel much harder? I think being published has made writing my second novel much, 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 mm. much harder. I also think the more you n- learn about writing, the harder it is to write. So when I was writing book two, book one, I just wrote. I didn't think about genre. I didn't think about, I just wrote. I didn't think, I mean, I thought about point of view and I knew you had to, but I didn't think, oh, you've got to have one point of view or get confusing. I just wrote what I wanted to read and what I wanted mm. to write. So now that you know so much more and now that people say, oh, your first book is this blend of genre genres and that's very unusual and dangerous like is it so gosh shit I better stick to one shot <laughs> do it again yeah yeah and the expect weight of expectation is absolutely massive there's mm. also I don't want to write the same book slightly differently again which I think some book twos are and I don't want to do that so it's been absolute hell I have got a story I really like but I have felt even more pressured and I've had to ask for an extension I'll put my hands up and say I I never thought I would need more time I wasn't that kind of person I stick to schedules I know what deadlines are I have all my life but no I've had to put my head up and say I need a bit more time and I would recommend anybody who's in my position do it talk to your agent ask for more time because it's really hard to write with a ticking clock behind you and you get well suddenly I speak for myself I got panicky and that made me just not write rather than write faster so I've got a bit more time I've got a first draft shitty obviously but um 
I like my story, I like my characters, and also I'm now over the huge hump of publicity. So I actually am relishing the thought for the next six weeks. I can actually just get back to being Nikki who writes because she likes writing and not worry about all the rest of it. So hopefully, hopefully book two will has be it, Has it changed your writing schedule? I mean, um, I know you started writing Wahala on a train, but now do you have to kind of, set yourself schedules and be like right at nine o'clock I'm starting how has it how has it kind of changed your writing routine so I'm, I think I, I've always had to write in complete silence so I can have ideas anywhere and I can edit anywhere and I can doodle notes anywhere but in terms of writing I always have to be at my desk it has to be completely silent my husband's breathing can involve me wanting to murder him okay with the dogs farting for some reason but can't handle any other noise no radio no nothing and I try to sit there for three hours and now I've got to be so much more disciplined I'm going to have to find some kind of social media blocker because suddenly I'm much more active on social media than I ever was and that ping just seems to be irresistible mm. and I need I don't need to like every comment within three seconds seconds of it being posted so I'm going to have to have some strict rules luckily I'm in the west country and our broadband is usually quite dodgy so it won't take much to make it even dodgier but yes I try to walk the dogs come back sit down for three hours and just write and as I said my first thousand words are usually complete crap but it gets me going and then sit there till I try to set a word count target which so I try to do two and a half thousand words in a session and sometimes that takes three hours and sometimes it takes five hours and sometimes I don't make it at all but I kind of I love ticking things off so I have the daily word count up on the wall in hundred blocks because I'd like to do a lot of ticks not just one tick at the end so that's sort of you know very childish carrot and stick and if you've done your 2500 you can do xyz so no I, I I definitely understand that and I think it's really helpful for people to to do the ticking off and to color in your box or whatever you've got to do mm. to get through to your word count um could you give us maybe three top tips for um writers who are are working on their novel at the moment or wanting okay, to my very first tip is read 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 in your genre read out of your genre read really wonderful books and read really rubbish books and the rubbish books are important because they make you feel much better about your writing <laughs> and for example I've got Clara and the Sun Kazuo Shiguru is probably one of my favorite authors in the world but I can't read it until I've finished book two because whilst you should read wonderful books if you read something that's so wonderful it's going to make you feel completely incompetent and wonder why you're bothering so he's my present for the end of book two <laughs> and at the minute I'm reading things I've read before because I find it comforting rather than diverting my second tip is keep going books are big 90,000 words is a lot of words and plots get tangled just keep going I've got a few friends who keep polishing chapter one and they never go any further because they keep coming back to try and make chapter one perfect and I don't think you can polish chapter one until you finish the book. So just keep going. Don't worry if you've got a crap chapter. Don't worry if you're writing in capitals, need to sort this out, not working. Just keep going. Just keep going till you get to the end because you're going to have to come back and unpick it all. And my third and final one is right from the heart. So, and this is what I'm trying to say book two, suddenly there's expectation, there's don't just try and ignore it all and write a book that you feel is authentically you because it will show in the writing, I think. Yeah, great advice. Really good. 
could you maybe give us a couple of books that you can compare Wahala to for readers who are thinking of uh, buying a copy if they haven't already? So not Sex and the City, <laughs> but I, I, would, I did set out to write a brown little, a brown version of Big Little Lies. And to me, that is the perfect comp for Wahala. It's also for me the most incredible comp because I think Leanne Moriarty can and she walks on water I just love her books and it was that sort of book I wanted to write where you can just get lost and have a good time reading it and it's not trying to teach you anything it's not sort of it's I think she writes beautifully but, but I think it's also just entertainment and expectation by Anna Hope I think because it does that friend thing and flawed characters thing so I'd probably say those two and finally I know we've talked a bit about the struggle of book two but can you give us a bit of a tease about what it's about Yes, book two is called Brown Girl in the Ring. And it's about, I think all my books will probably have a mixed character in it, but it's about a girl who's mixed race like me and she's living in Nigeria. And I have this cheap thing to make my life easier. I set books in places I've been or lived. So she's actually living the life I lived as a 10 year old in Nigeria in the same house I lived in, which makes my architecture really lovely. And something terrible happens and she's sent to England to live with her white family in a house in Somerset called The Ring, hence brown girl in the ring and so she comes here and there's obviously it's going to be uh, there's classism there's cult, there's racism there's prejudice there's all those sorts of things but again their texture and background because at its heart it's a love it's a story about two cousins and love and coming of age and because I can't help myself I think there might be an epic twist in there too <laughs> well it sounds brilliant and I wish you all the best with it with it with the writing and everything as well thank you so much Nikki for coming on the podcast thank you Chloe and I can't wait to read your book that was Nikki May talking about Wahala a novel about female friendship with a thriller edge and it's out now and available to buy thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts see you next time Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter pretty litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness it's the world's smartest kitty litter Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.